listening to The Union Edge, Labor's Talk Radio. For more information about the show, go to theunionedge.com. The Public News Service Daily Newscast for Friday, February the 2nd, 2018. I'm Mike Clifford. Today could be the day the much-talked-about GOP secret memo is released. That despite continuing objections from the DOJ and the FBI. We take a look at sex trafficking at the Super Bowl. Is it a myth? And a Texas program aims to make communities healthier. Now our top story, the Washington Post quoting an unnamed presidential advisor as saying, there was never any hesitation. The president was resolved on this. He was not going to be persuaded otherwise. He wanted it out. At issue is the memo written by Devin Nunes and his staff, which was first seen by President Trump on Wednesday afternoon. The Post says that General Kelly, the chief of staff, offered his opinion to Trump that releasing the memo would not risk national security, but that the document was not as compelling as some of its advocates had promised Trump. Both the DOJ and FBI are on record objecting to the planned release. It's being called a surprise victory for voting rights advocates. A federal judge has ruled that Florida's current system for restoring voting rights to people after their release from prison is unconstitutional. U.S. District Judge Mark Walker said the process used by Florida's Board of Executive Clemency to decide how a person can get their voting rights restored violates the Constitution, both the First and Fourteenth Amendments. John Sherman with the Fair Elections Legal Network challenged the Florida process. He says the court agreed the state doesn't have the right to disenfranchise or deny voting rights in these cases. What it did hold is the means by which Former felons are forced to jump through hurdles and beg uh, the executive clemency board, the governor, the attorney general for their rights. Uh, That process is unconstitutional. The rule doesn't immediately restore voting rights to people who have been incarcerated for felonies. Judge Walker ordered further briefing from all parties in the case to determine the appropriate remedy. I'm Tremel Gomes. More than one and a half million Floridians are unable to vote due to the state policy of permanently disenfranchising people convicted of a felony. Meantime, Eric Teganoff is here to tell us big money dominated the 2016 elections in Oregon. That's according to a new report. The Oregon State Public Interest Research Group, or OSPERG, found about 720 individuals and businesses contributing $5,000 or more collectively donated nearly $35 million to candidates and ballot measure campaigns. In contrast, more than 31,000 people who gave $250 or less donated $2.5 million. That means large donors outspent their smaller counterparts 14 to 1. State Representative Diego Hernandez says he has experienced the effect large donors have on elections. He says when he decided to run, he thought he could focus on the issues and voters. But it turned out that a lot of my time had to be spent also fundraising, (laughs) which is time taken away from having to go door to door, talking to constituents. And so it definitely is something that impacts the election process. The report also found large out-of-state donors outspent small in-state donors 10 to 1. Hernandez says these imbalances end up hurting candidates of color and women who run for office, since they typically don't have a network of wealthy donors at their disposal. And as you prepare to watch the Super Bowl this weekend, you may not know that the game has commonly been regarded as the single largest human trafficking incident in the country. Mary Sherman tells us that claim is now up for debate. As a sex trafficking survivor, Teresa Flores founded the SOAP Project. It stands for Save Our Adolescents from Prostitution. She explains the answer might be found online where most sex trafficking business occurs. 
Numbers don't lie, and if you go on and check it, you'll see it for yourself that they advertise Super Bowl special or football fan. So it's very much driven by the event. With the big game in Minneapolis this year, the Women's Foundation in Minnesota commissioned research on the matter. Co-chair of the Super Bowl Anti-Sex Trafficking Committee, Terry Williams, explains they discovered that while there is an uptick in trafficking in a host city, it is no more than any other major public event. Using that, we really brought our advocates together and law enforcement and all of those folks to say, all right, we know this is an issue 365 days a year. What is our response going to be leading up to and then beyond? The foundation is also developing a model of their human trafficking awareness efforts to be used for future events and shared with other cities. And finally, Mark Richardson reports some community clinics in central and southeast Texas being asked to improve health, not just health care, in their areas. A new grant program aims to help the clinics address the underlying conditions in their communities that cause health problems. The grants from the Episcopal Health Foundation total $10 million. Lexi Nolan with the foundation says the Texas Community-Centered Health Home Initiative will focus on eliminating the root causes of chronic conditions and poor health. A lot of our clinics are focused on issues related to overweight, food insecurity, active living. We have a clinic that's focused on adverse childhood events. So there's a range of issues, but these are common problems in lots of communities. She says the four-year program is investing between $160,000 and $500,000 in each of 13 urban and suburban clinics. To develop programs that improve both individual patients' health and entire neighborhoods, the clinics will partner with community groups, government agencies, schools, and businesses. Under the initiative, each clinic creates and implements an action plan tailored to its community with the foundation providing training and technical assistance. That's our news for now. Have a great weekend. I'm Mike Clifford for Public News Service, member and listener supported, and online at publicnewsservice.org. Hello, welcome back. I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to the Union Edge, Labor's Talk Radio. Thank you very much for tuning in, folks. We appreciate you hanging out with us for the afternoon, that's for sure. Hey, this program is sponsored in part by ATU85 and the uh, BCTGM, that's the Bakers Union. We appreciate their support. Joining us today from the Maritime Trades Department and the Seafarers International Union, Dan Duncan. Dan, welcome back, brother. Well, thank you. Glad to be back. Brother, it's always a pleasure. We appreciate it. Dan, you've been around the labor movement uh, for probably more years than you care to admit to, but um, you know, with, with uh, seasoning comes experience. Um, we may be running into a rough time, but it's uh, not a death blow by any stretch of the imagination, is it? No, it's not. You're talking about uh, being around for a while. I'm looking on my wall at my original union card from 1973. So we've seen the ebbs and the flows. uh, Is that 1873, Dan? Oh, just kidding. Sorry. Nice try. Nice try. (laughs) You know, when when Dan first joined the Pirates Union, it was the uh, ARG mateys, but yeah, I'm teasing. Uh, Very very good, because the retail clerks wouldn't like that. They were the first ones to get me. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, but but Dan, I mean, even if Janice versus Afton, yeah, yeah, I've been talking all day. Um, (laughs) Even if that happens, I mean, unions don't go away. Look. Uh, as I was saying to you, my first union card is 1973 uh, in Tennessee. 
every state I've worked in for the uh, either holding a union card or worked for a union has been a right to work for less state. And we've kept fighting, we've kept pounding, and we've kept getting the word out. Uh, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of effort, but the brothers and sisters who are union members in, in those states want to be union members, and they keep fighting and they keep showing what it's all about to others. And that's what it's going to take. If the Janus case goes against us, uh, against uh, our, our interests, well, uh, we don't roll over and play dead. There you go. What... What would you say to a local president, to a local union steward, to somebody who's thinking about, you know, joining a union today? What do you say to them? We have to show them the value in being a union member. The value and things like the uh, Union Plus program, the, uh, the advantage of having working together with one another. Uh, standing alone is a great American dream that we all see in the books, but it doesn't work. The individual is, <clears throat> is, a, is a wonderful idea, a wonderful creation, but it's people working side by side, standing together. I mean, yesterday was a prime example. 50th anniversary of the unfortunate death of brother uh, uh, of the two brothers in a sanitation truck in uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. <clears throat> because two men died, 1,000 others said that's enough. We've had it, and that uh, in a city where they said they'll never get a union, they'll never get a union. Unfortunately, it took another death, a very famous death in April of uh, 1968, to get the union, which still exists in Memphis, Tennessee. So individuals, yeah, you need an individual to lead, but an individual can't lead unless there's others with them. And people working together can accomplish great things. Absolutely. Uh, Dan, in your estimation, just how important is communications with the not yet but soon to be union public? Oh, absolutely. It's essential. There are so many people that just don't know what a union's about or they get fed the misinformation. Uh, when my wife and I moved up here, actually when I was transferred up here from Jacksonville, Florida to the D.C. area, we settled in Northern Virginia, and I've been a longtime member of the Lions Club. Well, a couple of members told me a couple years after I jo joined their club here in Northern Virginia that they didn't want a union person in there because of all the bad things they've heard about unions. But then they found a, met a union member, me, and said, well, that's nothing like what we've been talking about. That's nothing like what we've heard. You're involved. You're active. And, and you know, you're not, you're not this crazed person. And I said, no. All we want is our fair share. And, we, you know, nobody wants to take the uh, employer out of business because if he goes out of business, then we don't have a job. You know, and we're right. not strike crazy. That's right. another thing. You know, the only thing you ever read in the history books is about this strike or that bomb or something like that. And they don't. Uh, we, even though we created the eight-hour uh, eight day, we created the five-day work week. You know, the weekends, vacation pay, uh, benefits. It's always oh, the employer gave it. No, the employer didn't give it until a bunch of people stood up and said, "We need it and we want it." Absolutely. In today's environment, what do you think the best tool for organizing is? There are so many. <laughs> Some of these people who are just, you know, just think that they can run roughshod over the worker. Well, they're some of our best organizers. Yeah, they but are. That, but then you need to have take a look at some of the unions who have stood up and have taken made made life better uh you take a look at what the uaw is doing today working with ford working with chrysler working with gm uh to make sure that uh, those plants stay open and their people stay employed my own union the seafarers union has worked for 
decades with the ship owners to make sure that, uh, one, the workers are taken care of, but two, the ship owners are there so that there's work to be done. Uh, Union Plus, the mortgage programs, the credit card, I mean, there's all kinds of different things that, that can help with organizing, but the best one is brothers and sisters, wear your colors. You know, wear your union jacket. Wear it with pride. You don't have to wear it just to a union meeting. Wear it to the mall. Wear it to the little league games. Wear it to the soccer, the local soccer match. Let people know that you're union because it's surprising how many people have heard nasty things about union. But then you're my neighbor. We've been friends for years. I didn't know you were you. You're a union member. Right. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, if I'm in a place where you know I'm buying a cup of coffee or something like that, and there's somebody else who's wearing their union colors. I'll buy their lunch, I'll buy their coffee, and I'll say thanks for wearing your colors. Mm -hmm. Yesterday I was at a union hotel down in Orlando and uh, left a little something to say thank you to the the nice lady who took care of my room. And she looked at me and I said, I'm union just like you. And whoa, they just don't expect it. They don't realize it. Yeah, there you go. Dan, um, we appreciate the years of uh, support that you and the Northern Virginia folks have provided, the seafarers have provided, uh, President Sacco. Um, and, uh, you know, like it's, you know, like we're talking about here today, you know, labor may, you know, take another shot, but it's not over with. It's not done. And uh, we like labor. We're going to be back. Exactly. And our door is always open for you, brother. And we appreciate that very much. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, man, we appreciate, again, everything that you've done. So thank, thank you guys as well for getting the word out. And I know it's not done. Uh, you're just going into a little bit of a hibernation, and then you'll be back. There you go. Meantime, Dan, we appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds like a winner. Brother, it's always a pleasure. We appreciate it. Dan Duncan of Seafarers uh, International Union in the Maritime Trades. I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to the Union Edge Labor Talk Radio. In a surprise victory for voting rights advocates, a federal judge has ruled Florida's current system for restoring voting rights to people after their release from prison is unconstitutional. U.S. District Judge Mark Walker said the process used by Florida's Board of Executive Clemency to decide how a person can get their voting rights restored violates the Constitution, both the First and Fourteenth Amendments. John Sherman with the Fair Elections Legal Network challenged the Florida process. He says the court agreed the state doesn't have the right to disenfranchise or deny voting rights in these cases. What it did hold is the means by which Former felons are forced to jump through hurdles and beg uh, the executive clemency board, the governor, the attorney general for their rights. Uh, That process is unconstitutional. The rule doesn't immediately restore voting rights to people who have been incarcerated for felonies. Judge Walker ordered further briefing from all parties in the case to determine the appropriate remedy. Sherman says the ruling is expected to make the process easier for people to regain their right to vote after they have served their time. He calls the current system unfair for leaving the clemency board with unfettered discretion. Someone will be denied for a speeding ticket uh, one day and then the next hearing someone will be granted despite having a history of speeding tickets. Someone's granted Uh, despite alcohol use, another person's denied for alcohol use, and this is the problem with the process. There are no rules. 
More than one and a half million Floridians are unable to vote due to the state policy of permanently disenfranchising people convicted of a felony. In November, voters will decide whether to amend the state constitution to change that. The ballot measure to allow the automatic restoration of rights to those who have completed their sentence will require a 60% yes vote to pass. For Florida News Connection, I'm Tremel Gomes. The International Union of Operating Engineers Local 66 works with builders and contractors to build a better community. Local 66's tradesmen and women have received the specialty training needed to meet the complex challenges of any project, making them the most capable workforce in the region. From schools, highways, and pipeline projects to casinos and arenas, the operating engineers build any job, large or small. For over 100 years, Local 66 has provided superior service that our community can count on. They are your one-stop resource for qualified and productive operating engineers and heavy equipment mechanics. To learn more about the benefits of organized labor and more information about the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 66, go to www.iuoe66.org. That's www.iuoe66.org. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. We are the BCTGM fighting for American jobs. Nabisco, maker of iconic snack brands like Oreo, Ritz Crackers, and Chips Ahoy has made its fortunes in America, and its patriotic response has been to send U.S. jobs to Mexico. As a result, consumers across the U.S. continue to boycott their Mexican-made products. Corporate revenues are down across North America. Consumers are sending a loud, clear message. Now, religious leaders from all faiths across the U.S. are calling for an investigation into this Nabisco business model and have scheduled a six-city tour to look deeper into the matter. Just as the NAFTA negotiations are in the forefront, the faith community will begin to talk to workers, politicians, and other faith-based leaders addressing this U.S. jobs exodus by Nabisco from a moral and ethical perspective and widely publishing their findings. The BCTGM and Interfaith Workers Justice, its faith-based coalition partner, ask all people of faith and social conscience to join this fight against Nabisco's exploitation of workers in the U.S. and in Mexico. Millions are already not buying Nabisco products made in Mexico and it's already impacting their bottom line. Join our fight for moral and economic justice at fightforamericanjobs.org. Hello, welcome back. I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to The Union Edge, Labor's Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in. We enjoy your company. We appreciate all the wonderful things you're doing for the community, that's for sure. Hey, this program is sponsored in part by AppletreeMediaWorks.com and the Pennsylvania State Education Association. We appreciate their support. Joining me today from the Western Kentucky AFL-CIO Area Council, Barry Craig. Barry, welcome back. Good to be back. Barry, always a pleasure. We appreciate it. What's going on down in Kentucky, man? Well, the legislature is still bumping along. They have yet to uh, address the issue of pensions, which we've talked about many times. As of today, Charles, to my knowledge, there is no pension bill. Now, the story I've heard out of Frankfurt was they were waiting until after the filing deadline for the uh, May primaries uh, came and went, and it's gone. It, it passed on, on the 30th of January. 
but as of today, pensions, which is the largest issue by far in the legislature, has yet to be addressed. Uh, the Democrats have not seen this bill. I understand that a number of Republicans haven't seen this bill. Uh, it's very much like how the Republicans passed their Robin Hood reverse tax bill. They just got together, got behind closed doors, and did it, and came out and said, here it is. Uh, the other big issue for unions, of course, is workers' compensation, and I don't believe, as of today, they have filed a workers' compensation bill. Um, and if you recall, we've talked about this many times, um, last year, uh, with, at warp speed, they passed a right-to-work law, and they repealed prevailing wage, and they passed a paycheck deception measure uh, as a lickety-split. Within days after the uh, legislature opened, they did it. The governor, who is a Tea Party union-hating Republican, Matt Bevin, he eagerly signed them into law. But this year, Charles, uh, everyone's kind of waiting for that to shoot a drop on pensions, which uh, I've said before and will keep saying is the largest issue I have ever seen in my 40-odd years of observing Kentucky politics. So right now, it's, uh, it's cold not snowing, and the legislature will break for the weekend, and uh, maybe next week sometime we will we will see this pension bill revealed. Barry, when Kentucky went from a non-right-to-work state to a right-to-work state, um, the unions were prepared for that. Unions saw it coming. They knew it was coming. Charles, uh, we, we knew it was coming uh, in the preceding November. Uh, for years, the House of Representatives was our firewall against these union-busting measures. Uh, in fact, for years, Kentucky was the uh, the Kentucky House was the only legislative chamber in the Southeast with a Democratic majority. The Republicans took the Kentucky State Senate about the year 2000. They had a 27 to 11 majority, which they still have. They elected a Republican governor in 2015, and so this is when it got to be crunch time, and uh, in the Trump tsunami, which washed across this state, Trump got 62.5% of the vote. Uh, we lost that House majority in a big way. It now stands at 64 to 36. Now, there are a couple of special elections coming up here this month. Uh, we're pretty confident we can win one of those. Don't know about the other. That's a pretty solid Republican district, but yes, we saw it coming as soon as the returns were in, and we saw we had lost the House, the only question wasn't the question wasn't if. The only question was when, and they made that a top priority. The legislature's gavel in the session, and here it goes. It was a steamroller. Um, a handful of Republicans did oppose these measures, but by and large, the Republican it's a Republican bill. It's the way it is all over the country, and and the Democrats stood solid. But when you're just 36, it's pretty hard to do anything uh but that's where we stand right now right but one of the things that's interesting to me and i know this in previous conversations with bill Londrigan, president of the kentucky afl-cio mm -hmm. kentucky's union to membership total union membership in the commonwealth even after right to work was put in place has gone up right right we're more more than holding our own uh and, Charles, I just think it, it's obvious that people can see that, uh, well, you know, years ago, the state AFL-CIO had a, had a license plate. This is when I was a kid and Bill was still in New Jersey. 
uh, had a license plate. Now, in Kentucky, we only required to have a rear license plate. So the front license plate, you can put these novelty plates on. And this plate said, union wages buy more. And that's absolutely true. Uh, and I think people are realizing that. Another thing, too, by the way, before I forget it, and <coughs> excuse me, at 68, I'm sometimes forgetful. We just posted a story online about the, 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 the repeal, of prevail, repeal of prevailing wage and its effect in Indiana. I would recommend that your readers take a look at that website. It's a fascinating story by a group called it's the Midwest Economic Policy Institute, a uh, very interesting study that absolutely refutes 100% the claims of Republican and other union haters uh, about prevailing wage. So people, after the program, I will take a look at that. It's very enlightening. Uh, Bill Flynn, who's the uh, president of the uh, Kentucky State Building and Construction Trades Council, uh, sent us uh, that piece, and I appreciate Bill doing that. Bill sends us stuff all the time. But this is a very good article, and, and it really shows uh, statistically uh, that uh, all this stuff they say about prevailing wage is a bunch of, well, let's just say stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what the funny thing about this is is when legislatures bring in this type of uh, legislation, you know, quite honestly, the first people to get hurt are the non-union people because the contract is still in place. Absolutely. And, and, and again, that's another thing, too. And you might you might going back to that bump, that that license plate, you might say union wages buy more for everyone because union wages keep the pressure up on, on the non-union employees. Uh, we've got, for example, a big Toyota tire plant here in Kentucky. I'm sorry, not tire plant, car plant. And uh, they make a pretty good wage. And why do they make a pretty good wage? Because Ford in Louisville is UAW. You take away the UAW and you're going to have uh, everyday low wages, Walmart style for everybody. And that's something that people ought to understand. We've talked about this many times, is that union wages keep the pressure up for non-union places. Yeah. And, and again, workers' comp, uh, that's another big issue, uh, prevailing wage. That doesn't just affect union folks. That affects everybody who works for a living. Right. And i got to tell you, you know, probably speaking, that car dealership down the street from Ford, well, probably most people that work at Ford buy a Ford, but... You know, for instance, the uh, the home appliance uh, store down the street uh, really enjoys those union wages, too. Oh, absolutely, Charles. I, I, I can give you a personal example of that here in Mayfield, where I live in western Kentucky for years, with a huge tire plant. It was general and continental union plant, UAW plant, and it kept so many businesses open. You know, people would, uh, if you're a, a kid, a young person, or so, uh, you, first thing you did when you got got hired at General Tire, so many kids, you went and bought a muscle car. Uh, back in that <laughs> day, that would be a Plymouth Roadrunner or, or a Chevy Camaro. Or if you're an older person with a family, you went and bought a house. You bought appliances. And you had this, this spinning up of the local economy. The plant is gone. And, and I could take you and show you my hometown, the north side of our court square. It's a very typical Kentucky town in that the business district is around the courthouse. don't know how that is in Pennsylvania, but that's very typical of Kentucky. Yeah. North side of our court square is a bank. The uh, east side of our court square is a drugstore. The south side of our court square is a vacant lot. It's just a grassy lot. And the west side has three or four businesses hanging on. It was devastating to this community, the loss of these. About 2,000 people worked there. And these were good, about eight, uh, about 1,800 of them at one time were union jobs. And we've lost that. And it has really devastated this community. Not only that, 
of course, you know, the, the tax revenue from these, these big plants go to your local schools. And uh, the school system in the county where this plant was, it really hurt them financially. So it's, it's not just the loss of jobs. It really affects the whole community. I liken it to dropping a concrete block in the swimming pool. Big splash. Then come the waves that keep coming and coming. And, you know, when the plant closed, that was the big splash. And now the waves keep coming. There you go. That's the way it works. Barry, hey, we want to thank you for uh, many years of uh, coming on the program with us, sharing. I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I got to tell you, we had a lot of fun doing a lot of radio down in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And Met you at the convention a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So, and Brittany, too. Yeah. yeah. And so, in any case, um, we want to thank you very much, you and Bill, for all your support, all the support from everybody else with the Kentucky AFL. And, uh, you know, my goodness, uh, you guys have been very kind to us. We appreciate it. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Best uh, of luck to you. Oh, thank you. We appreciate it very much. Barry Craig, uh, how do we find out more about the Kentucky AFL? Just go to our website. Uh, just do a Google search, Kentucky State AFL-CL. We've got a lot of stories up, but I really would like folks folks to focus on the story that Bill Finn sent us about this, uh, the, the, how this debunks the Republican myths, the Republican lies about the prevailing wage. There you go. We'll talk to you again soon. That was Barry Craig of the Kentucky Labor Institute. I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to the Union Edge Labor's Talk Radio. The Colorado Independent Ethics Commission has created a set of rules for how the news media and the public can access its records, and it's getting some pushback about them. The proposed rules differ from those established under the Colorado Open Records Act, or CORA. Jeff Roberts, with the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition, believes the current state law should apply to the agency charged with investigating public officials accused of misconduct. The big question is, why should they be allowed to write their own rules of access to public records when we have this perfectly good state law that governs access to records for all other levels of state and local government? The commission's executive director claims it isn't subject to CORA because its office is now based in the Colorado Judicial Branch building. Judicial has not been covered under state statute since 2012 after a Colorado appeals court ruling. The commission's proposed proposal includes an option for making records available in print or digital formats, which conflicts with CORA requirements that agencies provide native digital files that are easier to sort and search. I'm Eric Galatis. Big money dominated the 2016 elections in Oregon, according to a new report. The Oregon State Public Interest Research Group, or OSPERG, found about 720 individuals and businesses contributing $5,000 or more collectively donated nearly $35 million to candidates and ballot measure campaigns. In contrast, more than 31,000 people who gave $250 or less donated $2.5 million. That means large donors outspent their smaller counterparts 14 to 1. State Representative Diego Hernandez says he has experienced the effect large donors have on elections. He says when he decided to run, he thought he could focus on the issues and voters. But it turned out that a lot of my time had to be spent also fundraising, (laughs) which is time taken away from having to go door-to-door, talking to constituents. And so it definitely is something that impacts the election process. The report also found large out-of-state donors outspent small in-state donors 10 to 1. Hernandez says these imbalances end up hurting candidates of color and women who run for office, since they typically don't have a network of wealthy donors at their disposal. 
Conley was the financial director for Twee Tran, a candidate for a House seat from East Portland who lost in 2012. Lee says the district is diverse, with immigrants and refugees who were engaged in her campaign but unable to contribute large donations. He says Tran also had to juggle being a small business owner. Frankly, she didn't have much time in terms of raising money, running her business, so she has an income so she can live, and then outreach to her voters. So she had to choose. Charlie Fisher, state director of Osberg, says House Bill 4076 could help candidates like Tran and also empower small donors. The bill would provide a six-to-one matching program for candidates who agree only to accept contributions of $250 or less. Fisher says the program has worked in other places. The city of New York has had a small donor matching program for a while now, and it demonstrably increased the diversity of donors giving to candidates running for city office compared to candidates running without matching funds for statewide office. HB 4076 is scheduled for a hearing Thursday, February 8th. For Oregon News Service, I'm Eric Tegedoff. We are the BCTGM, the union representing bakery workers. We have been joining forces with our members and thousands of community partners across America to end corporate exploitation of workers across the globe. Our campaign has its roots with the Mondelez Nabisco's firing of 600 workers at its Chicago bakery and replacing them with workers earning poverty wages in Mexico. College and university student activists have reached out to our global campaign, and the BCTGM is proud to welcome the more than 20 million students across America as partners in defeating this greed-based business model. Student voices have changed the world, and these future community and national leaders will add energy and heightened spirit to the BCTGM's consumer boycott of Mexican-made Nabisco products. Join the fight. Help change the world. Invite the Nabisco 600 team to your campus by visiting fightforamericanjobs.org. Follow us on Facebook at Nabisco 600 BCTGM Local 300. Hello, welcome back. I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to the Union Edge Labor's Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in. We enjoy your company. We appreciate all the great stuff you're doing for the community. That's for sure. Uh, hey, this program is sponsored in part by AppleTreeMediaWorks.com and I, the Operating Engineers Local 66. We appreciate their support. Joining us today, we've got Deb Klein of Cleveland Jobs of Justice. Deb, welcome back. Thank you, and it's it's great to be here with you. Hey, all, Deb. We're all here today. Hey, yeah. hey. Always a pleasure. Uh, yeah. So what's going on uh, in Cleveland? Yeah, you know, well, you know, I do want to say I just this is the way I'm I'm taking this today is that your the voices now will just be muted for a short while. I know you'll be back. You'll be back stronger. So yeah, it, we just it, all got to rally around and keep keep up the good fight. So we're like a bad penny. A bad penny? Never bad go penny. Away. Yeah, it just bad keeps penny. coming back. Ah. Oh, see, uh, Angela, I just kind of looked at you funny there for a yeah, second. Yeah, I, I, I guess thought that... it was like one of your dad jokes. Yeah, it was. It's <laughs> old. It's old. <laughs> You, you know what? And I got it right away. <laughs> you shouldn't admit to that, Deb. See, yeah, I, you shouldn't have admitted to that one. So, hey, what's going on in Cleveland? Yeah. yeah. So well, we are gearing up and are helping to organize um, people in the Cleveland area to go on down to the Working People's Day of Action on February 24th, which is part of the national fight back Um for the Workers' Day and all around Janice and everything else that's happening to union people across the country. Um, there's going to be a huge rally at the, the State House in Columbus at 10.30 on Saturday, February 24th. So if anyone is interested um, in getting on a bus 
in the, that's in the Cleveland area, they can email me at dkline, and that's D-K-L-I-N-E at clevelandjwj.org. Give me your contact information. Tell me you'd like to get on the bus. Um, also, I'm going to have a sign-up form up on our website, hopefully by the end of the day, which is clevelandjwj.org, so you can go there and I'll have something on the homepage. Um, but here is a way for labor and our community partners, people from community organizations, from the faith community, to go down and make our voices heard um, and fight back against the system that is trying to silence us. Um, so it's really important. And these are the things that we have to do um, to save labor in this country. You know, I'm, I'm a union president as well as being the director of Cleveland Jobs with Justice. So I know how important this is. Um, we have to do whatever we can to save labor in this country. We can't let it go away. Wow. How do you have time no. to do all this, Deb? Deb doesn't sleep. She's a superhuman. Um, yeah, I just, you know, I, that's it. I never sleep. Um it's 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 that's how important this is to me um that's and it's a lot of what keeps me going is is knowing that we just have to keep up the fight um on all fronts mm-hmm. uh, and i i'm always i've always been the kind of person that if you tell me no um i kind of dare people to tell me no because when somebody tells me no it's kind of like I'll, okay i'll show you um and then i i show people how i can turn that no into a yes um so the more that that I feel like I'm under the attack the more that I fight back. And because I'm an organizer, I get more people to help me, which yeah. is, you know, that's, that's, how you, that's, that's how you solve problems. So It really is. I mean, it's, the, you know, it's strength in numbers and solidarity, you know. That's the, and that's it. You know, it's um, any social movement that has happened in this country and across the world for, for um has always started with one person. You know, one person had the idea to change something that was wrong with the system. And then they organized others to join them. Um, and if that one person who had the idea to change the system just went away when somebody told them no or had doors closed in their faces, then we would have never had change at all throughout mm-hmm. the ages. You know, if Martin Luther King would have said no or had had turned around and went away when people slammed the doors in his face, then we wouldn't have the change that we have now in the civil rights system. So it's so important. Solidarity is so important not only in the labor movement but also in, in community organizing. And labor needs to show up more for community issues as well as community showing up for labor. So that's also important. We need to cross over and labor people need to show up more in the community as well yeah and to not be afraid to identify yourself as a union person when you are doing those things because i think often uh individuals are both community activists and labor activists but don't necessarily uh talk about the other you know either on the job about their community activism or vice versa um, so I think, like, being proud of being union and being proud of being an activist and right. um, mixing those worlds is important, too. It, it, it's, also yeah, very, it's also very important that uh, we address the issues that are brought up against unions. You know, when the story starts off, yeah, my cousin told me about this guy who knew that, uh, you know, those union people were bad. And that's how those stories, you know, it, it, it's never firsthand. It's never factual. It's and, and it's always the same old, same old. 
oh, well, those union people were sleeping on the job. You know, in, these things need to be addressed. They need to be addressed factually and say to people that, you know, hey, look, you know, were you there? No. Well, how do you know? Oh, cuz. Well, that that right. doesn't get it. Right. And like, we're also human. You know, un- unions aren't perfect because we're all a bunch of humans. It Just because it happened to be someone who's in a union doesn't mean that it's any different from someone else who's just working on a job without one. And in many cases. So, you know. There you go. It's not so well, doom and gloom. I'm sure- and I'm sure, I'm sure if that person who's complaining had a union behind them and something happened to them in the workplace and had the union step up and support them, they wouldn't turn down that support. Right. Right. And, and, and even those people that are saying that, oh, I, I deserve all the support that the union provides, but I should get it for free. <laughs> there are always going to be people in any community that, that are the me, me, me types that are in it for themselves, no matter who or what or when. And they, they are just going to continue to, uh, you know, try and take from everybody. And it just so happens that the, the, the union is being victimized by them at that point in time. Well, and, you know, and that's the, that's the other thing we're going to have to do. We're going to have to do a lot of PR. Um, we're, if Janice goes, if right to work goes, especially here in Ohio, you know, we fought it once and we're going to probably have to fight it again. Uh, we, we're going to have to have talk more about the good that we do as unions. Um, and that's one of the things that I've noticed through the years um, being involved or being a part of Cleveland Jobs of Justice. When, when unions go out and do good work, they don't talk about it as much as they should. Um, and, and that's, I think, one of the one of the faults of the union movement, they should be celebrating what they do. Um, you know, I just learned, and this is the first time I've ever heard this, um, I was at the AFL-CIO National Civil Rights Conference in Houston, and I just learned that um, it was two, two people from the labor movement to, that really fought to get um, Martin Luther King Day through, and it was all about making it a day of community service for the labor movement. And so that union members would go out in the community wearing their colors and letting the community see labor out in the community. Um, and while we were there, of course, we were in Houston. We went out on Saturday and, and did community service, which was really cool. I mean, I was a part of going into one of the um, one of the um, it was the Bread of Life where they had not only food, but also supplies for some of the, the victims still of, of the hurricane in Houston. So we packed up some bedrolls for people. Um, that were that we were they were able to hand out. So, I mean, doing community service, but letting people know that you're part of the labor labor movement, so that people see what we're out there doing in the community. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important. Hey, Deb. You know, and and we are we are coming to the end of it. I want to thank you for uh, being with us for many years. Uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate. All of your efforts for everybody in the community in the uh, Cleveland area, with the exception of that football team. <laughs> okay. We're, we're, yeah. Well, we keep trying. You yeah, can throw that trying. baseball team in there too. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. but in the meantime, we'll keep trying there too. We got to get going. How do we find out more about you and the Cleveland Jobs with Justice? You can find us on the web at clevelandjwj.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash clevelandjwj, and on Twitter at clejwj. There you go. We appreciate it very much. In the meantime, I'm Charles Showalter. 
You're listening to the Union Edge Laborers Talk Radio. I'm more resourceful than I thought. My suit can still make an impression. My video games are still game changers. And my lamp can bring others a bright future. Because when I donate my stuff to Goodwill, it helps fund job placement and training for people right in my community. Now my stuff gets a second chance. And will give someone in my community a second chance too. Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. That's Goodwill.org. This message brought to you by Goodwill and the Ad Council. Somos la Unión Internacional de los Panaderos, Confiteros y Trabajadores de Tobacco y los Molineros de Grano luchando por los trabajos americanos. Navisco, fabricante de marcas icónicas como el Oreo, Ritz Crackers y Chips Ahoy, ha ganado la fortuna en América y su respuesta patriótica ha sido enviar los trabajos americanos a México. Como resultado, los consumidores en los Estados Unidos siguen boicoteando los productos hechos en México. Ingresos corporativos han bajado en todo Norteamericana. Los consumidores están enviando un mensaje muy fuerte y claro. Ahora los líderes religiosos de todas las religiones a través de los Estados Unidos están pidiendo una investigación del modelo de negocio de Nevisco y han programado un tour de seis ciudades para investigar el asunto de manera más profunda. En el mismo momento en que las negociaciones de NAFTA están en la mente de todos, la comunidad religiosa comenzará a hablar de los trabajadores, los políticos y otros líderes religiosas con la intención de discutir el exilio de trabajos por Navisco desde una perspectiva moral y ética y publicarán ampliamente sus hallazgos. El BCTGM y su socio Justicia Obrera Interconfesional piden a toda la gente de fe y conciencia social que se unan a esta lucha contra la explotación por Navisco de trabajadores en los Estados Unidos y México. Millones ya están boicoteando los productos de Navisco hechos en México y ya está afectando sus ganancias de la empresa. Únase a nuestra lucha por la justicia moral y económica. Únase a nosotros en www.fightforamericanjobs.com www.fightforamericanjobs.com Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. You know what really gets a party started? Indoor baseball. Yeah, just find a broom or a pool cue, and you can use, like, anything as a ball. Cans, bottles, shoes. Hey, bro! Toss me that avocado. Most party fouls are pretty dumb, but if you decide to drink and drive underage, you could lose your license and your freedom. Underage drinking and driving, the ultimate party foul. Learn more at ultimatepartyfoul.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. One in seven Americans will struggle with addiction during their lifetime. Want to know how you can help? Go to heretolisten.com for tips and tools to help turn addiction around. A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council. 
You wanted to be a teacher when you were little, but you grew up and things changed. Well, it's time to put it back on your list. Innovative things are happening in teaching today, and you can be a part of it. Make more. Teach. Visit teach.org. Brought to you by Teach and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Union Edge Labor's Talk Radio. I'm Brittany Sheets, and I'm here with Angela Bachman today. It's always lovely to be here with you, Brittany. It seems fitting to me that we're (laughs) ending this on a high note on a Friday. Um, I want to say thank you again to Operating Engineer 66 and Jim Coons for all the work that he's done for us, and especially Katie Dexter, Snyder, sorry, at Apple Tree Media Works. <laughs> she has my back all the time and is always helping me fix the website things that are broken. Um, also joining us for this last segment, we have Lena Nellick, an engineer with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. And if I could work the board, that'd be cool. See, oh, I'm still thank- screwing it up on the last day. <laughs> You know, one, one, one would think that I could learn how to speak before, you know, after 11 years. Yeah, of well, you know, we all, we all have our challenges. And, of course, Charles is here, too. So um, I'm really happy to have everyone here for this last send-off. We're going to rant a little bit more here. There's a couple more things we would like to just kind of hit on based on what everyone said today about our feelings of the labor movement and how I think we could improve it moving forward. And I know right. Lena's prepared a couple things. She's kind of our, yeah. our voice that doesn't often get heard from, right. but she's very outspoken, <laughs> let me tell okay. you. Yeah, I'm usually behind the board. I'm, I help Angela out. Um, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how unions uh, protect like LGBT plus people, um, people like myself. Um, especially because I don't think a lot of people understand that uh, when you're at will, you basically, uh, even if there's a company policy that's supposed to protect you, you really aren't protected. It's really hopeful to hope that the government would protect us, but the first thing we need to do is protect ourselves. And that's what we, I mean, forming a union, being protected by a union contract, it's a form of protecting ourselves. Um, You know, when I was working here, I wasn't really worried because the environment here is really great. Uh, but it really gave me a, an extra peace of mind knowing that I had a union contract that like protected my job, and uh, knowing that like I wasn't really at risk, um, you know, unless I was obviously I was in violation of the contract, which I knew I wouldn't be. I'm a great employee, and I'm sure a lot of other LGBT plus people out there understand that. You know, working hard and just wanting to feel safe and protected at your job. Um, it's it's kind of actually a really big deal when you're when you're not scared to go to work. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm sad to um, be wrapping this up here. I know that I'm going to find lots of other opportunities, but um, in the meantime, I'm going to be out there fighting for uh, the rights of people of color, LGBT plus people, and just trying to get people organized and out there in unions because we need them. And to kind of branch off of that, that kind of brings me to what I was talking about the break is the fact that we need a huge PR movement here. Um, kind of what Deb was saying also, I mean, their unions do so much great in the community. And just over the years, we've talked to so many guests, especially with Connie Mabin. That's the one that really sticks out to me, Connie Mabin and the Steelworkers, because they have a next-gen program for younger individuals who are newer to the Steelworkers, mostly millennial-age individuals. But it's about guiding people, but it's also about bringing a new age to the unions. And I think that's something that we, we really need to work on in this country. Because, I mean, millennials... They're really positive as far as like all these polls are going. But, you know, as we learn in the elections, polls only go so far. 
Uh, but that being said, I, I think that we just we need a shift because of this is like the LGBT movement and everything. Like that's a that's a movement that we the unions are very supportive of. And I they think they need that, to be. I mean, yeah. they haven't always been in the past, but you can see a shift moving yeah. towards that and actually serving justice in that way and protecting us. Like because we're people, yeah, that deserve protection at work. And I think it's a great way to kind of branch into this new age of unionism and just this new age of education of just because this is becoming something that's very prevalent in this world that is a lot of people. People are it's a new idea to them but it's a very old concept essentially um but that being said that's that's just another excuse that we need to educate people and just bring them to light of, of this is how things work and i think the same concept with unions if they plan on expanding it's it's all going to be about the same the same way that you go about go about educating people and that's what you really have to do moving forward yeah i mean i think that if um the unions were to be really reaching out there and like we get a lot of support from the lgbt plus community, especially if we acknowledge that we're protecting mm -hmm. ourselves. And unfortunately, with the, the unions, it's not so much anymore where, you know, you just you go out and you just you get that union job after high school kind of deal like the just the, the role of work has just kind of changed. It's mm -hmm. not so much factory work. It's moving away from a lot of those standard types of jobs. Um, it, they're still there. Don't get me wrong. But that being said, a lot of people don't have those generations of families who, like, you know, their father, their grandfather, their aunt, their uncle, their whatever, all came out of union families and households. Well, I think it's interesting, too. Sorry. Um, I just no, think no. it's also interesting because those kind of jobs, of course, they were most prevalent um, in days kind of gone by. But also, if you think about the reason for unionizing those, those are dangerous jobs. Mm -hmm. You're not just talking about the money you're bringing home. You're talking about your life. You're talking about coming home with all of your limbs. And so I think they had more incentive to unionize than someone at an office because it's a little more abstract to be like, oh, well, I could maybe make more money, but maybe not. It's like, no, if I don't have the safety protections, I might not come home. So I think that it's it's a matter of educating people to say that like, okay, yes, your job might be safer, but you know, you still have a, all of these rights that you might or might not be, um, you know, actually getting because, you know, you don't, you don't have someone to stand up for you. You know, one of the interesting things that you guys are talking about, we've seen time and time again. How many times have we seen somebody from, you know, an, an adjunct professor or somebody working in a high tech field or something? Have you ever been in a union before? No. And then they, they, and then we get them to talk about, well, why is this so important? I mean, what was the epiphany for you? And they talk about, oh, you know, I never thought that a union would protect a person in my job, or I never thought of a union as, you know, but now that I'm in a union, it's important because, and, you know, I often say that, you know, a woman's place is in her union, preferably in a leadership position, you know, and, I, and I'm serious about that. Um, everybody else in the room except for me is a millennial. And, you know, my time is done when it comes to, you know, unionization, so to speak. You guys have a whole working career in front of you. And that is important, especially if it's in a union, because the, the, the additional wages, the additional protections and what it does in, for the community and what it allows you to do for the community. That's an important thing. And I'm glad to see this. And, and, and sorry, guys, you weren't alone. We're seeing it more and more and more, and we've talked to these people over the last decade. 
Yeah, I, I definitely feel like the, the crowd of people who are branching into unionizing is definitely changing. Um, I kind of feel like we might be a little late to the game in some instances. But that being said, um, the genus me thing, I mean, it's very concerning. Uh, especially to me, it's very concerning. I understand what's happening with it. Both my parents are teachers. I mean, like this kind of stuff can ripple through to affect all of that. Um, but that being said, for those people who think that this is going to kill the labor movement, eh, do I think yeah. it's going to, you know, I don't think so. take us in the kneecap? <laughs> yeah, we might be down for yeah. a second, but it's all about i think this as much as i don't want this to happen this might be the the radical push we need out of the nest to just completely just redo the way that we're organizing because if i think that we just we have it in our in our control we can do it i think we've just got to put our heads together and get creative yeah i mean i i think that it's really important to be protecting all jobs uh you know government jobs or especially what i'm think what i'm thinking about is like retail jobs the average mm-hmm. jobs i mean like like I said, a lot of um, LGBT people end up very poor because they can't get a job. And what do they do? They end up working at fast food or they end up working in retail. And those jobs aren't protected. Mm-mm. And they are basically at will and ready to be fired at any moment for any, you know, at the whims of a manager who doesn't like them because they're transphobic or whatever. Um, that's unacceptable. That's no way that that's that's no way to live. That's not how this world should work. Mm mm. Guys, we're like Rocky. You can't knock us down. We got like six more movies. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Well, in any case, um, again, folks, listen, um, the Union Edge Labor Talk Radio, we may not be broadcasting daily. Um, many thanks to all of our friends. Um, but we're not out of the game, that's for sure. And we appreciate everybody who's been supportive of this program over the years, operating engineers, um, Charlie McCullister, Rosemary, uh, Bush Trump. Santa Cola, thank Bush, you yes. for being our watchdog. We miss yeah. you, and we hope you're well. Yes, absolutely, and many others. And, and we're forgetting people. Please forgive us for that. Uh, it's not our intention. We don't mean to slight anybody, but um, special thanks to Bob Stevens, owner of uh, WKHB. Uh, we appreciate uh, his efforts uh, very much. Our and flagship station, and uh, he's been supporting us for a really long time. We yeah. appreciate it. And all of the other stations over the years who have picked us up and carried us anywhere from a half hour to three hours a day, we appreciate that. And um, my personal thanks to everybody in the room. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. So, folks, stand by. We're coming back. And keep the, keep up the fight. We we might be high, like Deb said. We might be hibernating for a little bit, but like keep going. We're gonna keep going. We need you to keep going too. Right. And I mean, just because we're not on the radio doesn't mean not we're we're not fighting behind the scenes. Like I said, we'll be in the streets. And I'm Charles Showalter. You've been listening to the Union Edge Labor's Talk Radio.